Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are kicking off Unearthed this season uh, with a look at Francisco Franco and the Spanish Civil War. These are topics that have come up on Unearthed a lot of times at this point. In particular, we have talked about the discovery of mass graves in Spain connected to the war and efforts to identify the bodies in them and return them to family members wherever possible. We have also talked last year about Spain's parliament voting to exhume the remains of dictator Francisco Franco and relocate them somewhere. At that time, they were talking about a state-funded mausoleum. The Spanish Civil War was also part of our Six Impossible episodes this past June when we talked about the evacuation of about 4,000 children after the bombing of Guernica. Every time any of this comes up in an episode, I think... We really need to get into more detail on that because we have not talked about a ton of Spanish history. And since debate over what to do with Franco's remains has continued to make headlines all throughout 2018, I mean, I think I have like 10 articles about it pinned on our unearthed pinboard. This seemed like a good time to finally do that. So we are going to talk about his career both as a military man and a dictator and why there is so much contention about what to do regarding his final resting place. And this is also one of those topics that could really be a whole series. You could launch an entire podcast that's only about the run-up to the Spanish Civil War and then the war itself and then the the dictatorship that followed it. So that's really our our focus, is his military service, his time as a dictator, and, and why there's such controversy over exactly what to do with his remains. Francisco Franco Bahamonde was born December 4, 1892 in El Ferro in northwestern Spain. For generations, the men in his family had served in the Navy, and his father was an officer in the Spanish Naval Administrative Corps. Franco's plan was to join the Navy as well, and he started studying at the Naval Preparatory Academy when he was 12. But the Spanish Navy was still really struggling to recover from the Spanish-American War at that point, including the loss of pretty much its whole Pacific fleet at the Battle of Manila Bay. As a result, the Naval Academy canceled its entrance exams the year that Franco was supposed to take them. So he shifted over to the Army instead and started attending the Infantry Academy in 1907 when he was 14. Franco didn't have much in common with his classmates, and later on, the same was true for his fellow soldiers. He was small, and he had a high voice, and he was bullied for it. He also had a reputation for being extremely serious and reserved, while the other men tended to spend their free time drinking and looking for women. In this way, Franco was a lot more like his mother than his father. His father was known as an eccentric womanizer who was too casual with money, while his mother was a devout Catholic who was serious and austere. Franco's performance at the Naval Academy was competent, but it wasn't exceptional. After he graduated, he spent a couple of years stationed in his hometown before being granted a transfer that he had requested to Morocco. He was transferred there in 1912 when he was 19 years old. A small part of northern Morocco had become Spanish territory during the Scramble for Africa. To quickly recap that, the Scramble for Africa spanned the late 19th and early 20th centuries as multiple European nations divided Africa among themselves. 
without regard to the nations, empires, and kingdoms that were already there, and without any input from any actual Africans. Spain's control of northern Morocco was part of a very complicated deal in which Britain, France, and Italy were all trying to secure their own interest in parts of northern Africa. In the end, most of Morocco was under French control, but the northern part closest to Spain, just right across the water from the southern tip of Spain, connected to both the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, that part was Spanish territory. After arriving in Morocco, Franco was promoted to first lieutenant in command of a Moroccan cavalry regiment. And he approached his command the same way he had approached his time at the academy. He was competent, professional, prepared, serious, and honest. In 1915, at the age of 22, he was promoted to captain, making him the youngest captain in the Spanish army. This wasn't just because of his competence, though. It was also because he put a bigger priority on self-preservation than some of his fellow officers did. So he moved up through the ranks as they were wounded or killed. He continued to do this until he was seriously wounded in 1916 and transferred back to Spain to recover. While he was there, he met Carmen Polo y Martinez Valdez, and the two of them planned to get married. But in 1920, Franco was made second in command of the Spanish Foreign Legion and sent back to Morocco. So the two of them didn't actually get married until 1923. Later on, they also had one daughter. Franco's second stretch of military service in Morocco mostly took place during a war between Spanish colonial forces and the Riffian people. You will also see them referred to simply as the Riff. This was a five-year war that began after the Riffian people tried to break away into an independent republic. Spain faced a massive defeat in July of 1921, losing between 8,000 and 10,000 men and being forced to retreat. A combination of French and Spanish forces put down the uprising in 1925. Franco was one of the most vocal and visible Spanish officers in this extremely bloody war, and he was increasingly celebrated for that back in Spain. Along the way, he was also promoted to lieutenant colonel and made commander of the Spanish Foreign Legion. He was promoted to brigadier general in 1926, making him the youngest brigadier general in all of Europe. Two years later, he was made director of Spain's General Military Academy. Throughout Franco's life up to this point, Spain had been a monarchy, ruled by King Alfonso XIII. Alfonso's father had died before he was born, so he was a monarch from birth, although his mother acted as regent until 1902. Since 1876, Spain's constitution had also required government-controlled elections that rotated through liberal and conservative parties. The setup sounds really chaotic to me, and on top of that, it was also prone to manipulation and corruption. And by the 1920s, things were getting worse. A military coup in 1923 established Miguel Primo de Rivera as prime minister. He ran the Spanish government as a dictatorship. Another series of attempted coups after that tried but failed to remove him from office. Spain's colonial activities in Morocco were also very expensive and very bloody, and Spain was really not getting a lot to show from all of that. There were repeated assassination attempts against both King Alfonso and his wife Eugenia, and then the Wall Street crash of 1929 combined with ongoing economic issues to spark the Great Depression. All of these factors ultimately led to both Primo de Rivera and King Alfonso losing support, including the support of the military. 
Primo de Rivera was forced out of office shortly before dying in 1930. And the king was forced to leave Spain on April 14, 1931, although he did not formally abdicate. Because Spain had very briefly been a republic from 1873 to 1874, the period after Alfonso's departure is known as the Second Republic. Becoming a republic did not fix Spain's problems, though. Spain's newly democratic government started trying to roll out a series of mostly pretty liberal reforms. Most people in rural parts of Spain were landless laborers, so efforts were made to redistribute land to them. The new government also tried to reform the education system and reduce the power of the Catholic Church. It also tried to drastically reduce military spending and the size of the military. This affected Francisco Franco directly. The General Military Academy was dissolved, and he was placed on inactive status. The Spanish government faced increasing criticisms over all of these reforms. They tended to happen very slowly due to a range of issues, including bureaucracy and the Great Depression. Eventually, they were unpopular on every side. Those on the political right objected to the proposed reforms happening at all, while those on the left thought they weren't ambitious enough or happening fast enough. Then, in 1933, conservatives gained a majority in the Spanish parliament and started rolling back what few reforms had been made in the earlier administration. Franco was restored to his former position in the army, and a year later he was promoted again. In 1934, miners went on strike in the Asturias region of Spain, and this strike progressed into a revolt. The revolt was violently suppressed by the Spanish military, and once again, Franco was praised for his role in putting down an uprising. Franco got a lot of praise for putting down uprisings. That was like one of the things people loved best about him. But by that point, things were really unraveling in Spain. Speaking in very broad strokes, people were increasingly politically divided and polarized between the left and the right. Groups, parties, and factions on each side started coalescing into unified movements. On the left was the Popular Front, and on the right was the National Front. In the February 16, 1936 election, the Popular Front won the majority in the Spanish Parliament. The newly elected government was concerned about rising nationalism within Spain's military. The military was purged of suspected conspirators, and some high-ranking officers were transferred to remote territory to get them out of the way. One of these officers who was transferred was Franco. Throughout his career, his actions had been really clearly aligned with the more nationalist side of Spanish politics. But he had never vocally taken a side in politics, and he had not participated in the earlier political coups that the military had tried to undertake. After the 1936 election, though, he thought the political situation in Spain was really precarious. He started appealing to this new government to declare a state of emergency, he was instead transferred to the Canary Islands off the coast of northern Africa to get him out of the way. He would return to Spain during the Spanish Civil War, which we are going to talk about after we first pause for a little sponsor break. From the creation of the Second Republic until 1936, the Spanish government really struggled to try to hold the country together during this series of increasingly turbulent elections and the creation of these coalitions among the nation's various political parties and groups. And as we noted before the break, people had become 
extremely polarized. The nation's military leaders tended to be aligned with the National Front. After the 1936 election, they feared the influence of communists and socialists in Spain and objected to the reforms and policies that the new government started making. As a result, generals under Emilio Mola started planning another coup. At first, Franco was not eager to have any part of all this. Like we said earlier, his actions were obviously more in line with the nationalist side of things, but he had avoided taking a public political position, and he had already gotten a punitive transfer to the Canary Islands. He just didn't want to get caught up in an attempted coup that had the potential to fail and then completely destroy his career. But as planning went on, and it started to look more like Mola's coup might be successful, Franco changed his mind. The coup was set to take place on July 18, 1936, with the uprising beginning within the army in Morocco on the day before. Franco initially broadcast a manifesto from the Canary Islands, but soon returned to Morocco to take command of the Army of Africa, which would become the Nationalist Army. This coup is also cited as where the term fifth column comes from. Uh, That term came up, I think, in our Executive Order 9066 episode with people in the United States saying that they feared a fifth column of Japanese uh, insurgents. So Emilio Mola had four columns that would head toward Madrid, and then he described that there was also a fifth column of supporters in Madrid who would rise up and fight with them when they got there. However, the coup as planned was not successful. The nationalist force was unable to take Madrid, setting off almost three years of devastating civil war. Speaking again in broad strokes, this was a war between the left and the right. On the right were the nationalists. They tended to be Catholic and affluent. A lot of them owned land or businesses. A lot of nationalists were also monarchists, and the nationalists were backed by the Spanish military. Then on the left were the Republicans, also known as the Loyalists, which largely included people in the middle class, along with laborers in both agriculture and in the urban centers. The Loyalist side was loyal to the government that had been democratically elected in 1936, while the Nationalists wanted to overthrow that government. This war was incredibly bloody and brutal. 27 nations signed a non-intervention agreement, but Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union disregarded it. Germany and Italy sided with the nationalists, and the Soviet Union sided with the Republicans. All three nations provided military aid to their respective sides. When the Army of Africa was moved from Morocco to Spain, it was done with aircraft from Germany and Italy. There was also the bombing of civilian targets that we talked about in that Six Impossible episodes earlier this year. As the war went on, individual cities and towns fell and were retaken with huge casualties on both sides, including among civilians. So the nationalist force would take a city and execute Republican supporters only for the Republican force to do the same thing after taking it back, or the reverse would happen. Regardless, though, the death toll was immense and the Civil War was marked by atrocities on both sides of the fighting. On October 1st, 1936, the nationalist side named Franco its head of state. By that point, the other leading generals had been killed in combat or plane crashes. He started further consolidating the various parties and factions to try to make one unified nationalist side. One of these, the Phalange or Phalanx Party, became the official nationalist state party in April of 1937. 
Four months later, thanks to the nationalists' pro-Catholic leanings, the Vatican formally recognized Franco as the Spanish head of state. At that point, the international brigades had also started arriving in Spain. The international brigades were, as the name suggests, volunteers from numerous nations. A lot of the organization effort had been spearheaded by the Soviet Union. These were people who came to Spain from all these other places to fight on the side of the loyalists. By the end of the war, more than 60,000 volunteers had served with the international brigades. Most of them were from France, although people came from roughly 50 countries. A lot of the people who volunteered to fight were socialists, communists, students, and labor organizers. George Orwell also fought with the Republican Army and wrote homage to Catalonia about the experience. By the spring of 1939, Franco's nationalists were headed toward victory. Republican soldiers and civilians had started fleeing toward France. Catalonia was the last major Republican stronghold aside from Madrid, and after it fell, the Republican side surrendered. Franco's force entered Madrid on March 28th, and the war was formally over on April 1st, 1939. The estimated death toll from the Spanish Civil War is 500,000 people, although the nationalists placed the figure at more like a million people immediately after the war was over. Spain's population at the time was about 25 million people, so about 2% of the population was killed just in the war. But the bloodshed didn't end when the war was over. As many as 100,000 people disappeared after the war as the nationalist regime started executing people with Republican sympathies, Hundreds of thousands more were made political prisoners. Republicans were also exiled, and people all across the political spectrum died of starvation and disease after the war or left Spain in the wake of it. Franco became Spain's ruler in a government that technically had a parliamentary system, but was really a military dictatorship. The parliament was more like an advisory body than an actual legislative government branch, and Franco was the sole authority over policies and decisions. Franco's government restored power to the Catholic Church and did not tolerate dissent. Laws restricted civic freedoms, including the freedom of speech, and people who opposed the government were tried in military courts and given sentences that were harsh and arbitrary. On September 1st, 1939, just five months after the end of the Spanish Civil War, Germany invaded Poland, which marks the beginning of Europe's involvement in World War II. And it seemed likely that Spain would ally with the Axis powers of Italy and Germany, especially given Italy and Germany's military assistance on the nationalist side during the Spanish Civil War. Spain's dictatorship was also more aligned with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy than it was with the Allied powers. But Franco proved to have the same kind of self-preservation that he did back in his early years of army service. He met with both Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and discussed what it would take for Spain to join the war on their side. Spain wanted territory after the war was over, including Gibraltar and Morocco, and Spain also wanted huge amounts of assistance to help with the recovery from the Civil War, Neither Italy nor Germany was willing to agree to Spain's terms, finding them way too demanding. Hitler is widely reported to have said after this meeting that he'd, quote, rather have three or four teeth pulled than ever have to have a meeting with Franco again. So Spain sympathized with the Axis powers, but mostly stayed neutral in World War II. 
But as it seemed increasingly likely that the Axis powers were going to lose, Franco started making gestures to the Allies. For example, Franco allowed Allied pilots who were shot down free passage through Spain so that they could get back to their units via Portugal. He allowed Jewish refugees similar passage through Spain. Spain's relative neutrality during World War II was not enough to gain the trust of other world leaders after the war was over, though. Franco was described as the last surviving fascist dictator. Consequently, Spain was barred from joining the United Nations, and the other United Nations member states withdrew their ambassadors out of Madrid. Spain was also left out of the Marshall Plan that was meant to aid Western Europe's recovery after the war was over. However, Spain's international isolation did not last very long. As the Cold War grew between the United States and the Soviet Union, Franco was vocally anti-communist. As we noted in our episode on the Mirabal sisters, the United States was willing to overlook a lot when it came to nations that opposed communism. The United States and Spain started reestablishing more normal diplomatic relationships in 1948. In 1953, the two nations signed a military assistance pact that involved allowing the U.S. to build military bases in Spain in exchange for economic aid. Spain was allowed to join the United Nations in 1955. By that point, Spain was at least technically a monarchy again. The 1947 Law of Succession, which was passed in part to make Spain's government more palatable to other nations, had established that Spain was a monarchy and that Franco was just acting as a regent until naming a successor. But this law didn't set any kind of timeline for that to happen. It gave Franco the freedom to be regent, kind of in quotation marks, for life. In the 1950s and 60s, student protests led Franco's regime to relax some of its more authoritarian policies, at least somewhat. But there was still ongoing resistance to Franco's rule, along with violence from separatists. This was particularly true among Basque nationalists. But to be clear, the Basques were not the only separatists in Spain. Spain's remaining colonies also pressed for independence, with Morocco becoming independent of both Spain and France in 1956. In 1969, Franco finally named his successor, Prince Juan Carlos, the grandson of Alfonso XIII, Franco continued acting as regent until 1973, although he continued to work behind the scenes after that until his health prevented it. He died in Madrid on November 20th, 1975, after more than a year of very serious illnesses. Franco's burial place is what brought us to doing an episode on him today, and we are going to get to that after we pause for a little sponsor break. Juan Carlos became king of Spain, he and his prime minister, Adolfo Suarez Gonzalez, started reforming the Spanish government. A new constitution was passed on December 6, 1978, with almost unanimous support. This constitution established Spain as a constitutional monarchy, with the monarch in an apolitical role. That 1978 constitution also establishes that Spanish citizens are equal under the law, and it includes fundamental rights and freedoms like the freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom of privacy. This was, of course, not the end of strife in Spain. But Juan Carlos was able to make sweeping changes that modernized Spain, protected civil rights, and restored democracy. Ironically, a big factor in his power to do that was that he was following Francisco Franco as head of state. 
Franco had given himself very broad powers, and after following him, Juan Carlos used that power to make big changes. Yeah, he basically used that power that Franco had had passed on to him to do the opposite of what Franco had done during his time as dictator. And these reforms were really not what a lot of people expected of the new king. Juan Carlos had very vocally praised Franco when he was named successor. And then after Franco's death, he made the Franco family part of the Spanish nobility. So Francisco Franco's daughter was the first Duchess of Franco. But Juan Carlos had also started secretly meeting and planning with democratic reformers long before Franco even died. The king also oversaw Franco's funeral and his burial in the Valley of the Fallen outside of Madrid. The Valley of the Fallen is an immense monument whose construction started a year after the Spanish Civil War ended, and it went on for 20 years. It's a basilica and crypt at the foot of a cliff with a massive granite cross on top of the cliff. It's really hard to describe the sheer immensity of this whole thing. And during its construction, Franco had described this monument and its building as an act of atonement and reconciliation, one that was meant to bring Spain together. However, it was also built by Republican political prisoners. The circumstances of that building are described as everywhere from forced labor to political prisoners being promised time off of their sentences if they worked on this being built. It was also intended from the start to basically be a monument to Franco and to be his own massive tomb. After the monument was finished, the bodies of 33,847 people who had been killed during the war were exhumed and reinterred in the surrounding forest to increase the scale of the monument. This was often done without the permission or knowledge of the families, and records were also really spotty. So in many cases, people whose family members' remains were relocated now have no idea exactly where they are. And there are ongoing legal battles to exhume, identify, and return people's remains. There are really heartbreaking stories in all of this. And as far as people who were like, okay, I'm looking for my grandfather, meticulously tracing the process of where their grandfather was, finally figuring out exactly where he was killed and where the people killed in that battle were buried, only to be told that everyone there was just dug up and transported to the Valley of the Fallen without anybody keeping track of exactly where. Only two people, though, are buried inside the church itself at the Valley of the Fallen. There's Francisco Franco, and then there's the Falange party leader, Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera. And today, admission into this church is only supposed to be for religious purposes. But for decades, people came to leave flowers on Franco's grave or to spit on it or vandalize it or try to blow it up. People visit the Valley of the Fallen because they lost family members in the war, but they also visit annually on Franco's birthday to memorialize him. Over the years, there have been repeated proposals to exhume Francisco's remains and move them somewhere else, to a more modest location that isn't effectively a monument to a dictator. Someplace that wouldn't become a pilgrimage site for fascists, uh, but those proposals have proven to be incredibly controversial. Unlike Germany and Italy, Spain did not suffer a military defeat during World War II. 
There was no war crimes investigation, no formal attempt to seek justice and atonement after the Civil War was over. Instead, the exact opposite happened. In 1977, political leaders agreed to what was called the Pact of Forgetting. Sometimes this is described as a pact to not ever discuss the Civil War again, but that's not exactly right. It was more like a negotiation among the various political factions to not let the war get in the way of working together to form a government and not to invest government resources into trying to resolve the past. This was followed by a 1977 amnesty law that legally formalized that agreement. This law released political prisoners and allowed people who had been forced out of Spain to return. But it also protected the people who committed wartime atrocities from ever being prosecuted. All this means that nobody on any side was ever held accountable for the many atrocities of the Spanish Civil War and the fascist regime that followed, including Franco. There was no investigation, no truth commission, no civic commemoration of milestone anniversaries of the war. Spain instead just tried to leave the past in the past and move on. That has started to change only very recently. Spain's 2007 Law of Historical Memory condemned Franco and his regime and established terms for removing some monuments from the Franco era. It also recognized the people who fought on both sides of the war and established that victims of the war and the dictatorship and their descendants could seek restitution. The attempts to identify bodies in mass graves that we've talked about on the show before mostly started after the passage of this 2007 law. Just this year, Spain announced plans to establish a truth commission. The historical memory law and legislation to exhume Franco's remains and similar steps have generally been taken when socialists have had the majority in Spain's government. And that's been over the objection of Spain's conservative parties. Conversely, when conservative parties have had power, They've either tried to roll back those earlier laws or stopped supporting them or allocating money in the budget to carry them out. And a lot of people feel like the historical memory law and other similar legislation is just digging up a horror from the past that should be left there. All of this has contributed to Spain being really divided over the legacy of Francisco Franco and how he should be remembered. On one side are people who consider him a fascist dictator whose regime murdered or imprisoned hundreds of thousands of people following an attempted coup against a democratically elected government. On the other side are people who think this attempted coup was a necessary intervention against communism and that the Republicans would have treated their opponents the exact same way if they had won. And since the Republican forces also committed massacres and atrocities during the war, there are also a lot of people living in Spain whose family members were killed by the Loyalists and not by Franco's regime. Because Franco's dictatorship was motivated more by a military-style efficiency than by a specific political doctrine, another argument was that he was sort of not that bad as fascist dictators go. This reminds me of growing up in North Carolina and the way (laughs) we would talk about slavery in history class. And it was sort of like, well, we didn't have nearly as many slaves as South Carolina, so it's not that bad, which is just not a very valid argument. There's a whole lot of, he was a dictator, but he was a good dictator. Or, he was authoritarian, but not totalitarian. 
His supporters also note that he never smoked or drank and is never known to have had an extramarital affair, and they point to this as evidence that he was a moral man rather than being a war criminal. Plus, Spain's economy started booming in the 1960s, which continued until Franco's death. This period is nicknamed the Spanish Miracle. Franco himself didn't really have anything to do with it, apart from handing the country's economic leadership over to relatively young ministers who liberalized the economy. But it still means that some people remember him as having finally rescued Spain from the economic devastation that followed the Civil War and that went on for decades afterward. Spain has also faced a huge economic crisis over the past decade, so many people who remember the 60s remember them as a time when Franco brought prosperity, which democracy has now taken away. Plus, all those decades leading up to the Spanish Civil War were very turbulent, with increasing division and a series of coups and attempted coups before the war itself even started. By comparison, Franco's dictatorship was kind of calm, All of this is complicated by the fact that Spain has never had a thorough accounting of the war and Franco's dictatorship, and it is divisive. One poll conducted in July of 2018 asked, are you in favor of removing the remains of Francisco Franco from the Valley of the Fallen? Just under 41% said yes. To the question, do you think it's a good time to address the issue, more than 54% said no. It's also really still unfolding. Franco's descendants have said that they would like to have him reinterred in the family crypt at La Almudena Cathedral in Madrid with full military honors. But that plan has brought on criticism that it would just make his burial place even more accessible and just as likely to be made into basically a new shrine, a shrine that would become a monument to fascism. And we are recording this episode on December 11th, 2018, at which point the issue is still not settled which means that I fully believe that three days from now, (laughs) some huge news story will break that will change everything that we have just said about where it currently stands. (laughs) Yeah, it's... uh, That that is a a trend when we record episodes that reach into the current era. Yep, it's pretty much immediately after we close the door on recording, then suddenly there's (laughs) brand new news. I mean, the most recent articles that I read about this were from yesterday, and we are... You know, we went in, we go into the studio at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. So it was like 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon was my last news update on the status of the burial place of Francisco Franco. Or it'll wait until about 20 minutes after the episode publishes. Since right. we're prepping for holidays, we're prepping in advance. Yep. <laughs> so, so we'll be like trying to have Christmas <laughs> and madly trying to uh, acknowledge that things have shifted. Yep, completely. <laughs> Do you have a little bit of listener mail? I do, and it is from Katie. Katie says, Longtime listener and huge fan, Katie here. A month ago, you did an episode on Kristallnacht, which later raised the discussion about the evolution of the name for that night. Last week, I happened to be in Berlin at the museum, the Topography of Terrors, where coincidentally, they were showing a special exhibit on that night. The exhibit itself was called Kristallnacht, but then throughout the text of the exhibit, the event was referred to as Reichspogromnacht. I found that interesting and thought you might as well. They didn't really address the evolution of the name, but did address how awareness of the event has grown in the past decades. Attached are photos of the exhibit. Overall, it was incredibly moving, as the the museum itself built over the block that used to contain the headquarters of the SS, 
and the Gestapo. Also, an episode suggestion in pictures, the Gate of Ishtar. So she goes on to talk about the Gate of Ishtar, and this email included six really beautiful photographs um, of the gate and then also of uh, parts of that museum exhibit. So thank you so much, Katie. That was an interesting look at how a museum in Berlin might uh, address the fact that people may remember something by one name when that name is not necessarily the preferred language in Germany now. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we are all over social media at Missing History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, our Pinterest, our Instagram, and our Twitter. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes of all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together and a searchable archive of every episode. And you can find and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 